0: I'm Marjorie Malpiti, and I'll be hosting today's quadcast. June is Pride Month, a time to celebrate LGBTQ plus voices and culture. It is also an opportunity to focus on how colleges and universities are supporting LGBTQ plus students. Today's guest has a new book that does just that. Dr. David Rivera is an associate professor of counselor education at Queens College, City University of New York. He is also special advisor to the Steve Fund, the country's leading organization supporting the mental health of students of color. Hello, David. We are so happy to have you. Hi, Marjorie. So happy to be here with you. It's great. I'm so excited to start talking about your new book. So you, together with your colleagues, Roberto Abreu and Kristen Gonzalez, have just released Affirming LGBTQ Students in Higher Education. So congratulations.
1: Thank you so much.
0: It's really a terrific resource for the field. Super practical. I really enjoyed reading it. I guess my first question is, can you tell us why you and your colleagues got together to create this publication?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And thank you for the positive, affirming feedback already. Our book was just released on... May 31st last week, just in time for Pride Month, and when we were talking about this book and conceptualizing it, we recognized that there were already books out there that address sexual orientation and gender identity issues in higher education. However, we realized that many did not take a psychological wellness perspective, and many tended to overgeneralize the experiences of LGBTQ plus students. And so we wanted to highlight the role of a primary psychological concept, that of minority stress, and how that creates wellness and educational compromises for LGBTQ plus students. As well as we wanted to attend to some of the specific minoritized populations that often go overlooked, such as BIPOC students, students with disabilities, rural students, first-generation going college students, and international students, to name a few. So our goal was to gather the top minds in the field to share their combined knowledge to produce resources that are both educational and practical in nature.
0: So David, obviously, I want the listeners to go out and purchase the book and read it for themselves. But I am going to ask you some pieces of advice that you, you give in the book. And I might start by asking the premise, which is really having us all get a better understanding of the unique stressors faced by LGBTQ plus students, as well as BIPOC students, and how this affects their mental health. I'm not sure that it's as understood as it should be, David, you know, the stressors that are faced by these subpopulation groups, then the impact that that has on their mental health, which we're seeing time and again through the data. So if you could talk a little bit more about the experiences of these students and the different challenges they face.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I completely agree with you. You know, the stressors that LGBTQ plus people in general and students specifically experience have been pretty well-documented. Many studies have been out there that have, done, that have looked at the kind of college going experience, what the campus climate is like, and what the educational and wellness outcomes can be. And what we find is that LGBTQ plus students uh, experience disproportionate amounts of identity based stress when compared with their heterosexual and cisgendered peers. We call this minority stress. This includes stressors such as harassment, discrimination, and victimization. Sometimes these come in the form of microaggressions, which is probably a more commonly understood phenomenon in everyday society these days. So that's the more commonly covert types of experiences that people have with discrimination. And so the other part is this is the resulting symptoms that come from these experiences with harassment that can prolong the initial stressor, such as rumination and hypervigilance that often result when people experience victimization, harassment, or discrimination in a particular setting, they tend to ruminate about it, and they tend to become more hypervigilant in those settings, right? which can then take a toll on energy resources that are very finite and need replenishing, and when those are depleted, that can lead to a lot of the compromises that we see, such as decreases in physical wellness and increases in mental health struggles for LGBTQ students. So for example, something that I experience very commonly in my work with students at CUNY, especially my transgender and non-binary students, is that they often find themselves in a predicament just when they want to go use the bathroom on campus. I often ask folks to think about when was the last time they had to consider their safety and accessibility to bathrooms when they have to relieve themselves. And most people are probably gonna say, I don't have to consider it very often, right? As long as I know where one is, I can go and relieve myself with adequate safety and accessibility. So many campuses have done excellent work in providing gender-affirming restrooms and labeling some bathrooms as all-gender, and also including the necessary psychoeducation about gender identity and restroom use to the campus communities. However, some campuses missed the mark in truly making their restrooms accessible and safe for all students, especially for trans and non-binary students. And as I mentioned, this can cause undue stress for these students who find themselves without an accessible and safe place to relieve themselves. Not being able to satisfy this most basic of human needs can be a major source of minority stress for trans and non-binary students and also sends a message from the institution about the value or rather lack of value given to trans and non-binary members of the campus community. So the last thing I'll add is that minority stress on campus isn't the only stressor that impacts the wellness of our LGBTQ plus college students. We also have to take into consideration the disproportionate impact the pandemic has had on minoritized communities, including LGBTQ plus communities, as well as the ever-increasing hateful rhetoric and legislative efforts to purposefully exclude LGBTQ plus people from full participation in education and healthcare, which are necessary for optimizing wellness and lifetime opportunities.
0: Thank you for that and the example and the and the overall sort of foundational premise to this. It's interesting because you know from the work that, that we all do in this space that we talk a lot about the impact of belonging, the feeling that you belong in a community and how that impacts your mental health. And I know that that is a big issue for these subpopulation groups. I want to dig in a little bit deeper on this and ask about intersectionality because We hear this term often, as your book points out, it was sort of developed for the field, I think, in the late 80s. Why is the intersectionality so important to what we're talking about in terms of identity?
1: That's a a great question. And I want to also start with that concept of belonging that that you mentioned. I do a lot of work in diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, right? The B is often missing. I think the B is probably one of the most important dynamics in DEI work right? It's not enough just to include people, right? We've been doing that for quite some time in higher education, but we've been doing that without purposefully inducing a sense of belonging for students who have been historically excluded from higher education, including LGBTQ plus students. And so this idea of intersectionality becomes really important because what really happens when intersectionality is kind of experienced by students, is experienced by the campus, is that people will start to feel seen, right? They will start to feel affirmed. They will start to feel as if they have a meaningful sense of connection to that institution. So I want to start first with defining what is meant by intersectionality. It's important that we have a common understanding. We use this term very frequently in society. And what I find is that this term is often conflated with the idea that we are all composites of multiple identities some that are privileged, some that are oppressed. Our understanding of intersectionality is a bit more complex than just understanding that we are all composites of multiple identities and is rooted in Black feminist thought and in legal theory. Legal minds such as Crenshaw and Collins really helped to lay the foundation for how we understand intersectionality from a legal perspective. And so we've borrowed a lot of that in the field of psychology. And so They posit that intersectionality really is about the multiple interlocking systems of oppression that exist, and that these systems negatively impact the wellness of oppressed people. Intersectionality theory also suggests that racism, classism, heterosexism, sexism, cissexism, just to name a few, work in conjunction to stigmatize marginalized community members with multiple marginalized identities. And so we use intersectionality theory to situate our understanding of how power systems position LGBTQ plus students within social institutions like colleges and universities, and often position them in positions of oppression and with A lack of power and voice and agency. So, this intersectionality perspective forces us to look beyond the individual level of experience and to contend with the systems and structures that can dictate how we as individuals navigate the world around us, including in the system of higher education. If we don't take a systems perspective, we miss out on the ability to identify the structures in the system, such as laws and policies that create the minority stress we are attempting to alleviate. Identifying these harmful structures is necessary to the process of dismantling these harmful structures and replacing them with structures that are affirming of LGBTQ plus students and all students in essence, many that our book provides practical recommendations for doing so.
0: So if there were ever an opportunity to have an ecosystem where you actually might get this right? taking a positive view than it would potentially be on a college campus, correct? Which is why this work is so important. So let's talk about that, what colleges and universities can do to better support these students, which is really the premise of the book, particularly in the area of mental health and well-being. So one of the things I love about the book is the practical advice you provide for a range of students on a range of campuses. I mean, you really lay it out for administrators and students which I also loved that you actually speak directly to students on this and provide them with some advice. But I wonder if you could talk, David, just generally on the main principles for improving how we support LGBTQ plus students. And then also, if you want to just give us a sense of how you split this into community college students, student athletes, students with disabilities. And again, I think it was terrific that you really laid all this out. So can you start with some general advice and then talk a bit about some of these subpopulation groups?
1: Definitely, Marjorie. I I want to start with, after our introductory chapter, the book starts out with a brilliantly drafted chapter by Dr. Annalise Singh, who is currently the chief diversity officer at Tulane University and a counseling psychologist who has done a lot of work in gender identity issues, especially affirming gender identity practices. Dr. Singh penned the chapter, Institutionalizing LGBTQ Plus Student Support. That's where we want to start, right? We want to make sure that these practices are institutionalized. We decided to start out with this topic to introduce and reinforce the process of institutionalizing these affirming practices. In our collective experiences as editors and even as authors in this book, we find that many services aimed at supporting LGBTQ students lack the institutional homes that are necessary for their survivance in the long term. They're often not truly embedded within the fabric of the institution. In many circumstances, these services and programs live within specific people, often LGBTQ plus identified staff, faculty and students who often have other roles. Right. But have taken this on as an additional role because of the lack of attention that the university or the system is giving to these students. This means, though, that the programs and services can disappear when the individual holding them no longer works at the institution. And Marjorie, as both of us know, higher ed is going through a big process of increased turnover, something we've never seen in the past. right? And so it becomes even more crucial that we institutionalize these services as people are becoming more fleeting on our campuses as as workers. Some recommendations for institutionalizing support for LGBTQ plus students are to create policies that affirm their educational experiences such as seamless processes for changing their names and gender identities, embedding issues relevant to LGBTQ plus student success in the mission of the institution, and in the strategic plans that are used to guide the future direction of the institution. And these are additional ways of strengthening the institutional support for LGBTQ students. In particular, the book offers critical consciousness raising and practical tools for affirming LGBTQ plus students in specific settings with additional salient identities. As you mentioned, we have a chapter on community colleges which was penned by one of my CUNY colleagues at Bronx Community College, Dr. Emmelinda McSpadden, and two of her undergraduate students, one that was actually a student in my leadership program. And so what I really love here is that we're not only telling institutions that they must center students in these efforts, but we're also including the voices of students in the very chapters that are also calling upon institutions to center students. And so what they've done in their chapters, they provided a literal roadmap for planning and developing LGBTQI plus resource centers on community college campuses. I believe that, you know, community college campuses, they're very unique, and I've had experiences working on several of them, including Bronx Community College. Many are commuter campuses, right? So they don't rely on some of the after-hours extracurricular activities that residential campuses often rely on to kind of keep the student life and movement going. And so there might be additional structures that community colleges might want to put into place, such as resource centers. And so based on their experiences developing a center at Bronx Community College, These authors share specific strategies for doing so on other community college campuses. In relation to transgender and non-binary students, our authors Luke Allen and Laura Dickey who are incredible experts in gender identity and gender diversity and whose work has been used to develop guidelines that the APA uses for recommendations for working with trans and non-binary people, wrote this chapter, and some of the recommendations they offer are that institutions must make modifications to make restrooms and student housing safe and accessible places for trans and non-binary students. Again, it's not good enough just to offer a all-gender bathroom or a student housing environment that is inclusive of all genders, there needs to be an educational component. And that's often what we find missing, is that educational component that helps to lift the collective consciousness of the campus so that people have an understanding of why these services are being implemented and why they are definitely needed for the success of these students on our campuses. When we think about students with disabilities, you know, our, one of our leading experts in the field is Franco Dispenza, and him and his researcher, research team wrote this chapter on strategies and practices in interventions in higher ed, and they really say that they should incorporate some things that we already know. So we know that universal design principles are helpful in making environments more accessible more safe, more affirming for people with ability issues. It helps to bolster resilience. It helps to ease the transition into college and into to the world of work. If anybody is not familiar, just very briefly, universal design is the design of and structure of an environment so that it could be understood, accessed, and used to the greatest extent possible by all people, regardless of age and ability. They also say that students need support both in and outside the classroom. All institutions are required to uphold ADA principles and to provide accommodations for students with ability and learning ability issues. However, they also need this kind of support outside of the classrooms. And so we encourage higher ed folks to consider how accessible student extracurricular activities are as we know that participation in extracurricular activities helps to support optimal interpersonal and social skill development. We also have a chapter on student-athletes, and this is an issue that has been elevated in the media, given the barrage of legislative efforts to reduce and really negate the experience of trans and non-binary student-athletes. As covered in a previous chapter of the book, we spoke about the importance and the efficacy of safe zone program and safe space programming, which has been around on our nation's campuses for several decades right now. However, these authors are, are recommending that campuses tailor a safe zone training to the specific needs of college student athletes and recommend proposing a safe zone program where people can be educated about the complexity of being an LGBTQ plus student athlete, and furthermore, identifying the specific needs of this population. As I mentioned earlier, the book also contains chapters on some areas that have been overlooked altogether in the field of LGBTQ plus studies. One population that is very near and dear to my heart because of my own lived experience is that of first-generation going college students. So I, myself, am the first in my family to go to college, and I understand the complexities and challenges of being a first-gen college student compounded by my other minoritized identities as a queer person of color. So this chapter, penned by my colleague, Allison Cereso, and their student, Amaranta Ramirez, illuminates the experiences of LGBTQ plus first-generation going college students and offers ways of affirming their experiences. For example, they recommend a specific focus on the social adjustment to college, And in building social networks and social capital necessary for optimizing one's fullest potential and overall educational success. The authors also provide recommendations for helping students from low income backgrounds build financial security, which we know is often an issue that can limit and prevent students from completing their college journey. And finally I wanna talk about rural students. Again, another under investigated population that I highly relate to. As someone who was born, raised, and partially educated in Wyoming, probably the one of the most rural states out there, I can relate to these experiences. Again, I never read about the experiences of rural LGBTQ plus students until this chapter came across my editorial eyes. And these authors talk about fostering resilience, improving program offerings, and proactively engaging the rural LGBTQ plus population through outreach, as these are important to the success of these students.
0: David, that was absolutely terrific. I feel as though I learned so much just in the last five minutes. So thank you for that. I have a couple of last questions here, and I want to bring you, because you've been terrific giving us examples and practical advice, but I think in the last few minutes we have, I want to ask you about some big picture stuff, like Mm -hmm. culture. Colleges and universities are mirrors of society. All of us in this field really do a lot of work around engendering flourishing in students, right? creating campuses and communities where every individual thrives. And I'm always struck by the importance that diversity plays in that. And when I say that, really, it's about respect and acknowledgement and support of every person that is participating in your community. And so it's almost everything when you think about it. And I know we have these great terms like DEI and whatnot. But I do have a question here. I'm getting to it. You, in the book, you talk about it as a, the book itself actually is a call to action. And I wonder, given what I just said and all the great information that you gave me, uh, gave us today, what do you think really needs to happen for us to be able to get to that point where everyone on campus is feeling as though they belong?
1: That is the trillion dollar question uh, that we have here However, I do think that we do have some of the solutions and ideas that are going to lead us forward. And again, that starts with centering the experience of our LGBTQ plus and other minoritized students. Again, their experiences have, they were not included in the original foundation of higher education in this country. Again, we know that historically, when we look at the historical record, the history of higher education which is really important when we are talking about dismantling structural racism, structural oppression, structural sexism, structural cissexism, is that we think about the historical foundation of higher education, right? Knowing that it's only been about the last 40 or 50 years that higher education has started to work on overtly integrating the rest of society who had been left out, which includes most people in society, women, people of color, people with disabilities, low-income first-gen people, LGBTQ plus people, the list goes on and on. And as we mentioned earlier, higher ed has made efforts and a lot of headway in including these students, but we have not done our job in terms of making our institutions truly affirming and truly a place that induces a sense of belonging for these students. My students time and time again still report that they feel like outsiders, like guests, like unwelcomed guests at best on their campuses. And we need to change that narrative. Um, Our students aren't leaving. Our students know that they need to have this education so that they can be out there in the world and actualize their fullest potentials and so they're going to continue to come even though they know they're going to probably experience oppressions. Going back to intersectionality, It is really important that we take the broader view, right? That we don't allow ourselves to get stuck in the individual experience, which is really important to acknowledge and affirm, but we have to understand how the individual experiences are shaped by the structures and systems that we navigate, including in higher ed. And so what we're really seeking to do with this book is, again, a call to action, a call to advocacy, right? Not only for professionals such as myself, but for students as well. Research already informs us of the dire circumstances that many LGBTQ plus students find themselves living within and many of the threats that continue to permeate in society at large, such as, again, the mounting legislative efforts to reduce and prevent full participation of LGBTQ plus students and people in society. Just so that folks can have an understanding so far, we're only, what, six months into 2022. We've seen more than 300 anti-LGBTQ plus bills introduced in states across the country. Right? Every time one of these bills is introduced, even if it does not go into action, right, even if it is not passed or the governor of that state decides to take a stance and not sign it into the law, the rhetoric around these bills is already out there and already doing damage. Right, It's already adding to the negative discourse around who LGBTQ plus people are and what rights they have to just live their lives. Right, And so the damage has already been done. And so our advocacy efforts are needed now more than ever. Engaging students in advocacy efforts can be an important part of their educational experience and can also teach them essential advocacy skills that they will likely need to use in everyday life currently and post-graduation. Engaging in advocacy can be a helpful intervention as it can also help instill a sense of hope and purpose that can help LGBTQI plus identified people persist in this face of mounting adversity?
0: Well, that was, again, tremendous advice, and I appreciate uh, you speaking so candidly about what needs to be done. Certainly, we have many challenges ahead, but it's wonderful to have the efforts that you and your colleagues, that this book illuminates, such great experts, such terrific commentary. And so, again, the book is called Affirming LGBTQ Plus Students in Higher Education, and Dr. David Rivera from City University of New York and the Steve Fund. We are so grateful that you gave us your time. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Marjorie.
0: This has been the Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating, a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening.